The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place that where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before to Galilee. There you will see him, and he has told you. And they went, and they fled from the tomb, and with trembling and astonishment, and seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were too afraid. Uh, Well, we're going to get into our our Bibles this morning. If you want to open, uh, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 15 and Mark chapter 16, where we're going to be uh, spending our time today. Uh, We are in our last week of our series through the book of Mark. We've been working through the book of Mark for, I think this is week number 19, working through the book of Mark. We did the first half of Mark's gospel in uh, around July, August, September last year. And then we've been doing the second second half of Mark's gospel for these last eight weeks or so. And so today we are finishing up uh, Mark's gospel. uh, And we are also finishing, obviously, with the resurrection of Jesus. And as you'll see... The, uh, the way that uh, Mark finishes his gospel, he doesn't just peter it out. It doesn't just kind of disappear. Mark's gospel goes out with a massive bang, a massive bang with the, uh, with the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to finish today, finish our series with the resurrection of Jesus. And then next week, start in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. We're going to be there for seven weeks as well. Um, the resurrection is the great and wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is in fact alive right now. The resurrection is the good news that Jesus is alive. And you're going to hear me say those words, Jesus is alive, many times today because we've got to remind ourselves of that truth. My kids uh, yesterday uh, were playing with this large, uh, large Jenga block set. Sorry, on Friday morning, we were playing with a large Jenga, a giant Jenga. So if you know Jenga, it's like that tower game where you pull out the little blocks and you stick them back in again. Um, Javen and Holly, uh, for whatever reason, gave us a version of giant Jenga. And so we were, they were out in the front driveway on Friday morning playing with our neighbor's kids. And they were all playing together. And they built this giant stack of timber blocks on top of a couple of milk crates. And then they were standing back from a distance and hurling basketballs at this giant block of, block of timber, this giant um, building of timber, to be able to knock it over. And they realized after a while, hey, if we go for the milk crates at the bottom, the whole thing will fall over rather than going for the ones at the top. And the resurrection is kind of like the milk crates at the bottom of the tower. But if you take that out, if you take the resurrection out of the Christian message, if you take out the message that Jesus is in fact alive right now, the rest of Christianity will actually crumble. The whole thing will fall apart. That's how important the resurrection is to us as Christians. So if you've joined us today and you're not a Christian, we are very, very glad that you are here. But hear this. We understand, we know that the resurrection is so important, that Jesus is alive is so important, that it holds up the rest of the gospel message. Additionally, the, gospel, the, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a great story, it's a massive claim. The resurrection of Jesus grabs us by, the, by our shirt collar and forces us to pay attention to Jesus Christ. 
And what the resurrection does is it forces us to make some kind of decision about Jesus. You know, you can look at Jesus' teaching, you can say, oh, it's very, very nice, and all kind of stuff, but the resurrection doesn't allow us to do that. The resurrection of Jesus says, no, you've got to make a decision about this guy, Jesus Christ. We can't think in any kind of detail about the resurrection and then walk away as if nothing has changed, as if it doesn't matter. It's what C.S. Lewis famously said, that when you consider the claims of Jesus, you can really only conclude that he's either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. Those are, those are our options. Jesus is either a liar and he should be utterly rejected. He's either a lunatic and should be completely ignored or he is Lord and we should give him our entire lives. So my purpose today as we examine the resurrection of Jesus is to examine this claim that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. We're going to firstly look at that claim that Jesus did rise from the dead and then we're going to look at the proof of that claim and the evidence that Mark gives in the gospel to support that claim. And so that's going to be the structure of today's sermon. We're going to see the claim of the resurrection and then the evidence or the proof of the resurrection. So firstly, the claim of the resurrection. We're going to begin with a very wonderful verse, chapter 16, verse 6, when the angel says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Wonderful verse. We looked last week at that horrible verse in in chapter 15, where Jesus uh, breathed his last breath. Like, how unbelievable is it that Jesus breathed his last breath and now... Verse 6, 16 verse 6, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was, cruci- who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. These three women, Mary and Mary and Salome, uh, come to the tomb. They are told that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is no longer there. He has risen. Now that, of course, is exactly what Jesus predicted three times in Mark's gospel leading up to this event. Three times Jesus says this. So in in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's the first prediction. The second prediction came one chapter later in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Then another chapter later, in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. You can't get much more specific than that, because that's exactly what happened. Happened. They take him into the Sanhedrin, they they give him a false trial, they condemn him as guilty, and they hand him over to the Romans, to the Gentiles. He says in verse 34, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. All these things happen. And then he says, and after three days, he will rise. Three times Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And here, in the cave, in in the tomb, these women are told he has risen. It's come true. What he said has come true. He didn't stay dead. And here's the thing. If someone predicts their death three times, 
and, and predicts their death, and they say, they give really specific details about how they're going to die and who, who it is who's going to kill them. And then they also predict that three days later they're going to rise again. When that actually comes true, when that actually happens, we have to pay attention to absolutely everything else that Jesus ever said. There's no such thing as, oh, I like the teachings of Jesus. I think it's really quite cool. I think it's quite you know, interesting. I think it's quite heartwarming. I love the way that he loves people. It's very, very nice. It's all very comforting. You can't just accept some of Jesus and leave other parts out. If he predicts that he has been, he's going to be resurrected and then that happens exactly as he's going to say it, then we have to listen to absolutely everything else that Jesus says. We can't ignore it. It's impossible to ignore everything else that Jesus said. And so if you take the resurrection out of Christianity, you might as well get rid of the rest of Christianity as well. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive. Right now, Jesus is alive. 2,000 years ago, a carpenter from Nazareth was killed on a cross, and we believe that he's alive right now. It's crazy, right? Like if, if it wasn't for the fact that the Bible teaches us this and we actually have had the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel and see how wonderful this is, it's crazy that like it, it kind of makes us sound a little bit insane, doesn't it? That we think that that Jewish uh, carpenter from Nazareth is still alive right now. And it sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the earth. Our Savior, the one on whom all our faith and our hope rests, is not dead, but he is alive. So anybody who says something along the lines of, oh, all, all religions are the same, has no idea what Christianity is, is all about, because we believe that our Savior is actually alive right now. And that's the essential hope of Christianity. Without the resurrection, Christianity will ultimately fall in a heap. So we need to constantly have in our minds, in our hearts, be chewing on the fact, be remembering, be meditating on, be repeating it to ourselves, he is alive. He is alive right now. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul's going to give us a whole lot of conditional sentences, a whole lot of if this, then that. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then, even Christ has been, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, take the resurrection out of Christianity, take it out of the equation, and Christianity falls apart. Paul says our preaching is in vain, which means it's a waste of time that we've gathered here today. He says, your faith is in vain, which means you are far better off trusting in something else. Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, yet we preach that, then we are misrepresenting God. Not only that, but if there is no resurrection, then we are still in our sins. Take the resurrection out of Christianity, and all of a sudden, every single one of us is still responsible before God for our sins. Can you imagine that? I had that thought run through my mind this week, a thought that I'd never had before, or at least in this way. If all of a sudden, 
I found out that I would now have to pay the penalty for all my sins. Like if for whatever reason God said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. It's back on you. You've got to take responsibility now for your sins. That would crush my life. I would not be able to survive that. The resurrection holds up the truth that we are no longer in our sin. Take the resurrection out of Christianity, says Paul, and it means that for those who have fallen asleep, they will not be raised again in Christ. There's no hope. They are eternally dead. And if there's no resurrection, Paul says, then this life is that all that there is. This, is. this life that we see right now, that's all that there is. And Christians, above all people, should be pitied. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. That's why it's such a pivotal point in the gospel. Because in rising from the grave, Jesus was destroying the final enemy of God's people. He was destroying death. Death is dead, as we sang before. Wonderful line. Death was the consequence to Adam's sin, and therefore death is the trajectory for all those who do not trust Jesus. But for those who do trust in Jesus, death has been destroyed. In the resurrection, Jesus killed death. The eternal death, then, is not in our future. That's not in our future. Yes, we might die to this life, but we will be raised with Christ if we are in Christ. And this means that for those who are in Christ, we can say with straight-up confidence the exact same thing that Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death does not concern us anymore. Death does not cause us to fear and quake anymore. Friends, we must set our gaze upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must chew on the fact that Jesus is alive right now. We must remember that. We must have that hammered into our minds. We must drum it in over and over again. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. We need to hammer that home, make that the rhythmic pattern in our, in our mind, in our thinking, that Jesus is alive. Masticate on the fact that Jesus is alive. You won't forget that sentence anytime soon. Jesus is alive. Remember that. And if he is alive and we are in him, then we will be raised too, eternally. And when we know that, that puts this life into a whole lot of perspective, doesn't it? Doesn't mean that this life doesn't sting anymore. Doesn't mean that the pain that we go through isn't relevant or isn't real or legitimate. It still hurts. But we have this great hope that the ultimate, ultimate end of all people, which is death, will not be the, the ultimate end for those who are in Christ. We will be raised again because Jesus Christ was raised again. That's the wonderful truth of the resurrection of Jesus. That's the claim. That's the claim that the Christianity makes, that he is alive right now. Now we come to the proof. And like I said earlier, it is crazy that a group of Christians like us today are sitting in a room celebrating the fact that he is alive right now, 2,000 years after the fact. And the reason why we believe that he is alive is because the Bible teaches us this. Now, the case that the Bible makes for the resurrection is built on two key pieces of evidence. Firstly, there is the empty tomb. And secondly, there, is, there were multiple eyewitnesses who, who saw Jesus after the fact. So if the tomb was empty and there was no, nobody saw Jesus afterwards, then nobody would say resurrection. Nobody would conclude that. 
if there were sightings of Jesus, but the tomb was not, wasn't actually empty, he was still there, then the sightings of Jesus could be easily explained as a hallucination or something like that, easily disproven. But the Bible claims that both of the tomb was empty and that people saw him after he was resurrected. Hundreds of people, hundreds of sightings and interactions with the, resur- with the resurrected Jesus after his resurrection. So we've got to look at this now. The tomb was empty. The angel says to the women, He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, as mild and innocuous as a statement like that is, it carries a tremendous and thunderous claim. The tomb was empty. It had to be empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, all it would have have taken to disprove the claims of the apostles who went around afterwards telling people that Jesus was alive, all it would have taken to disprove them would be to take people back to the tomb, open up and say, no, he's not alive. There he is right there. He's dead. But they didn't do that. They couldn't do that. Why? Because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. So we've got to ask, okay, is there another explanation? For the, for, the, for the fact that the tomb was empty. Is there something else we can point to and say, that's the reason why the tomb was empty? And there are generally uh, three main objections to the empty tomb, or three other explanations. Firstly, some people will say that the tomb, sorry, <clears throat> the body was removed by someone. <clears throat> so some people have tried to explain that the tomb was empty because the chief priests and the Jewish leaders moved Jesus' body to another location before his disciples could come and get the body themselves and go and start telling people that he was resurrected. And the problem with this explanation is that it doesn't account for the inability of the chief priests and the scribes to stem the growth of Christianity. If you read in Acts, you'll see that within a couple of months, 50 days after these events, there were over over 3,000 people in Jerusalem who believed that Jesus actually was alive. If the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, if they had the body, if they had taken the body from the tomb, if they had that, then all it would have taken to stop Christianity in its tracks was to present it, was to say, no, he's not alive, here he is right here, he is still as dead as the day that we killed him. That's, what they would have had to, they, that's all they would have had to do. But they couldn't do that, because they didn't have the body. In fact, if we read in Matthew 28, the, the parallel account of this, Jesus tells, or we're told that the chief priests actually paid off the guards who were protecting the tomb to say that the followers of Jesus had actually overpowered these fierce Roman soldiers and had taken away the body. So that was the rumor that was going around, but people just didn't believe it. This is the other theory, that the disciples moved it. The theory goes that somehow these fishermen and tax collectors, who had all but disappeared out of fear during Jesus' crucifixion, attacked and overpowered the guards outside of the tomb. <clears throat> if you read in Matthew 27, the chief priests and the Pharisees were concerned that they would come, and so they asked Pilate to protect the tomb, lest Jesus' followers would attempt to do this and actually claim that he was risen. So Pilate gave them some of his own soldiers to guard the tomb, instructing them to make it as secure as they can, and they sealed the tomb. The seal was the sign of the authentication that the tomb was occupied, and the power of Rome stood behind that seal. The men guarding it would have numbered around 16 of the fiercest soldiers of Rome, who each knew that failing to guard the tomb would be punishable by death. So I don't think that's happened. That's what happened. I don't think that the disciples turned up, overpowered these Roman soldiers, and stole the body. 
I don't find that compelling, not just because they couldn't have done that, but also because of how many disciples died believing and proclaiming this truth that Jesus was alive. So many of Jesus' followers died for the sake of the, of the gospel, which if they stole the body, they, knew, they would have been dying for what they knew was a lie. Friends, somebody might die for a conviction, but no sane person will die for a concoction. No sane person will lay down their life for something that they know is a lie. The second option, the second explanation, is that the body was actually lost. So some people will try and say, well, actually, maybe they lost the body. Maybe they put him in the wrong tomb and they just couldn't actually find it afterwards. The problem with this explanation is just how many people were aware of where the tomb was. There's no indication in the Gospels that they buried him in some kind of mysterious spot in a secret tomb somewhere. Joseph was able to get hold of a tomb and he laid Jesus' body there. The women saw where he was buried and they came back there three days later. Pilate had allowed the chief priests and the Pharisees to protect that tomb. They knew where that tomb was. It doesn't make sense that they lost the body. Additionally, Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, doesn't just tell us the big important facts about Jesus' burial, but he also gives us a surprising amount of small and insignificant details. So on the way to the tomb, Mark tells us that these three women, uh, Mary and Mary and Salome, as they're walking to the tomb, they were having a conversation about how on earth they're going to be able to move this, this stone from outside of the tomb. Now it strikes us, it strikes me as a very ordinary conversation. Like have you ever had to swap cars with somebody and then you go home and you're like, oh wait, how am I going to get into my house? Like it's not, that's not an exciting detail to remember about your life. That's just normal stuff. And I wonder if these women were walking to the tomb and went, oh, hold on, halfway there. How are we going to move this, this stone out of the way? Like, how are we actually... Like, was this a, a normal, insignificant, logistical conversation that they had on the way there? Not only that, but there's all these small amounts of details, like the time of the day, and the color of the clothes that the angel was wearing, and the place inside this tomb that the angel was actually sitting if such small things are remembered about such insignificant details, it's very hard to believe that they could have forgotten where the tomb was. The third option, the third explanation that some people give is that Jesus never actually died. Some people will say that Jesus actually just passed away, passed out from the pain, and, though, and they thought that he was dead. Then in his weakened state, he rolled away this tomb, the stone himself, overpowered the guards, and snuck away. Now, it's hard to believe that. The problem with this objection is that when Joseph came to ask Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate asked for confirmation that Jesus was, in fact, dead. And so he sent word to the centurion. You remember that centurion from last week who stood by the cross and said, surely this man is, truly was the Son of God? That centurion gave a report that Jesus was, in fact, dead. Now, that centurion probably saw his fair fair, uh, share of crucifixions, and the Romans knew how to kill people, and they knew when they had done the job. They knew what a dead body looked like, probably far more than most of us. The average citizen in Rome probably knew what a dead body looked like more than us. But just in case we're not convinced, we can turn to John's Gospel, and we're told there of a few more details how they determined Jesus' death. The Jewish authorities uh, didn't want to leave dead, defiled bodies hanging on a cross during the, during the Sabbath. So they went and they asked Pilate if they could break Jesus' legs to speed up the process. 
that would have, uh, that would have left the victim hanging by their hands and the process of as- asphyxiation would have been accelerated. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. But just to make sure, to confirm this, they thrust a spear into his side and out came a flow of blood and water, which gives us the medical evidence of his death. It indicates that a massive blood clotting had occurred in the main arteries, which showed that Jesus had died even before they stabbed him with a spear into his side. Jesus definitely died. He definitely died. And yet, the tomb was definitely empty. This is summed up again in that verse, Mark 16, 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He, is, he has risen. He is not here. He was crucified. He has risen. Pay attention to the tense of that sentence. He was crucified. He has risen. He definitely died, and the tomb was definitely empty. However, this doesn't fully account for the resurrection, because all we have here at this stage is an empty tomb. It's still hard to prove the resurrection. There needs to be more evidence. What we need is eyewitnesses. And the Bible gives us plenty. Now, skeptics of the resurrection will often dismiss the eyewitness testimonies, assuming that people back in those days were very superstitious or very gullible. And so it makes sense that they think that the tomb was empty. Of course the ancients believed that the tomb was empty. They were superstitious. They were gullible. They'd believe anything. You know, they don't have science like we do. We, we, have the, uh, we have the knowledge of science. We know how to determine if someone's truly dead or not. We know how to ex- explain this stuff. Surely back then, uh, it would have been far easier, to be- far easier to believe in the resurrection than it is now. Now, if that's you, if that's how you think, be careful. Because you're committing what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which says we know better than them back then. We know better. The problem with that way of thinking is that it completely ignores the way that Greco-Roman and Jewish thought functioned. In Greco-Roman thought, so if you were a Greek or a Roman back then, the physical and material world was considered to be weak and corrupt and fallen apart. And so death was liberation from the body. The idea of the resurrection then, when someone's soul was returned to the body to come back to this earth, would have been quite repulsive to them. It meant... Sorry, it wasn't something that you could easily convince a pagan of. It wasn't something, something you could easily convince somebody of because it would have been quite appalling to them. The resurrection wouldn't have been an easy sell for the typical Greco-Roman person. And if you were Jewish, you would have believed in the resurrection. Uh, it would, res- belief in the resurrection was very common, but the resurrection was believed to happen, to happen at the very end of the age for all people, not in the middle of history. And so the idea of it happening for one person right in the middle of history would not have made any sense. The average Jew probably would have said, how is he resurrected? We know the resurrection is coming, but at the end of the age for all people, you're saying one person got resurrected in the middle of history? That's nonsense. So while modern Western people might have scientific objections to the resurrection, the people in Jesus' time would have had a whole set of very other compelling reasons from their day to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They weren't gullible. They weren't simple. This wasn't an easy sell for them. There had to be insurmountable evidence. There had to be proof. And this is where the eyewitness testimonies are so important. This is why we've been reading so much from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. 
Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15 something that we cannot ignore. He says from verse 5 that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In John's Gospel, we even find more details and evidence of their skepticism in Thomas. Now, Thomas wasn't convinced of the resurrection. He said, I need to see his scars, I need to touch his scars. So when Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, he knew more of more than 500 people who had seen the resurrected Christ. And though he concedes that some of them have passed away, most of them, he says, are still alive. Why is this important? Because the Corinthians who were reading this for the very first time could go and find one of those 500 people. They could talk to one of the 12. They could find this out. They could go and knock on, tap on them on the shoulder and say, hey, can you tell me about it? They could go and talk to these eyewitnesses themselves. He names a bunch of well as well. He gives them names. And it's not just Paul who does this. Mark does this as well. Mark drops a bunch of names. Firstly, he talks about Joseph. And we, we, we can read this at the end of chapter 15. He drops Joseph's name, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. And mentioning him by name is incredibly risky if it's not true. By name-dropping Joseph, Mark is taking the risk that the evidence of Jesus' resurrection was so compelling that even Joseph of Arimathea, as well-known as he was, had plenty of re- who had plenty of reasons to distance himself from Christianity, would not be able to, to, to deny it. He mentions someone who's very famous, who's known for being part of the Sanhedrin, and he says, Joseph, who was looking for the kingdom of God, was the one who buried him. You can go ask Joseph. Joseph had plenty of reasons to distance himself from the, from the Christians, but here he is by name. But it's not just Joseph, and it's not just the apostles. In Mark and in all of the Gospels, the first people to come across the truth of the resurrection in, of Jesus are women. This is not something that we should overlook at all. There was, of course, Mary Magdalene, who was a main character of the resurrection in all four of the Gospels. There is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. There is some speculation about whether or not this is Jesus' mother. It's hard to be sure. There is also Salome, who we don't know much about. These women had been watching Jesus' crucifixion from a distance and had actually been with Jesus and ministered to him since Galilee. And along with a great deal of other women, they had followed Jesus to Jerusalem. These women saw where Jesus was buried and then they went on the first, on the, um, three days later to the tomb and they were the first ones on the scene at his resurrection when they go to anoint his body with spices. These women were likely well known in the early church. So too likely was, it, was James and Joseph well known in the early church. If Mark was making this stuff up, he would never have used the first names of people who were well known to people around them. Imagine if I came to you and I said, hey, um, you know, a few people have said to me today, hey, how was your week? Imagine if I replied like this. I've had a fantastic week. I went for a swim at Bullcock Beach and I saw a dolphin. And that dolphin had this glint in its eyes. It said, come and climb on top of me, Jimmy. I'll take you for a ride. And I climbed on top of the dolphin and it took me for a ride down Pumicestone Passage. And it took me on a tour of Bribey Island then brought me back and dropped me off at the beach. How would you respond? <laughs> you would say, that's ridiculous. Pull the other one, Jimmy. That's absolutely outrageous. That would never happen. 
But what if I said Dorothy was there? She saw all of this happen. Go ask Dorothy. You would go and you would ask Dorothy and you would believe Dorothy because we all know Dorothy doesn't lie. And this is what Mark is doing. He's saying, go ask Mary. Which Mary? Mary Mary or microwave Mary? No, you know, Mary, Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Some of you don't get that joke. That's fine. I, I understand that. It's all good. Go ask Salome. Go ask James and Joseph. Go ask one of the 12. Go talk to Thomas. Go ask one of these 500 people. Go ask these people. Go speak to these eyewitnesses. That's what Mark was doing here. And the fact that these were women stands as an even greater proof of the truth of the resurrection. Because back in those days, women's low social status meant that their testimony would never be admissible in a court of law. So if this was a made-up story, there is no possible advantage to say that the people who were the first on the scene were women. In fact, in fact the, uh, the scholar N.T. Wright believes that there would, have been such, there would have been enormous pressure on the early church to omit these women from the record because it would, have, it would have been hard to believe, simply because they were women. But they couldn't remove their statements because it was true, and the people knew this too well. When the Bible claim, what, the, what the Bible claims is that the tomb was in fact empty, and beginning with a small handful of women and then the disciples, there were hundreds and hundreds of people who saw Jesus in the days after his death. Can you see that if you're here and you're not a Christian, the burden of proof to prove that Christianity is true and the resurrection, resurrection is true, the burden of proof is not, actually not on Christians. If you're here and you're a skeptic of the resurrection, the burden of proof is on you to prove how Christianity could have at all gotten started if they, believe, if they knew it, would, it to be a lie, if this wasn't true. How else can we account for the unbelievable and explosive growth of the church? How else can we account for so many people going to their death for this truth? How else can you account for a bunch of people in Caloundra 2,000 years later coming to church instead of going away on a very long weekend? How can you account for a bunch of people coming to church to proclaim, to still proclaim his resurrection, that he is alive? The resurrection makes a claim that we cannot ignore. It makes the claim that Jesus is our king and we ought to give him our lives. If it's not that, then he's a liar and a villain and we ought to ignore him altogether. There is no middle ground. When we consider the claim that Jesus is still alive, Jesus becomes a spanner in the works of someone who wants Jesus to be their savior, but not their king. And that's what this whole series has been about. Jesus, the king. That he's not just our savior. He, he is our savior, and that's wonderful. But how often do we say, yes, I love the fact that Jesus has saved me from my sins. That's so wonderful because I love sinning. So that's really, really great for me. No, Jesus is our Savior and he's our King, which means we're not. We're not in charge. He's the one who is in charge of our lives. And that's the claim of the resurrection. And we can either believe that to be true and give him our entire lives or believe him to be a liar and completely reject him and everything that Christianity stands for. Those are our options. There's no middle ground. 
There's no such thing as I like Jesus' teaching, but I don't believe that he is risen. His teaching does not leave us with that option. He's either the king and he's everything to us, or he's dead and he's nothing. Friends, may I invite you to consider that, that the resurrection is all the reason that we need to believe in Jesus and center our entire lives on him. If you're not a Christian and you've never considered this, please, for the sake of your life and for your own salvation, consider the empty tomb and the king who walked out of it. If you are here and you are a Christian, please consider the resurrection of Jesus as something that will be the key to bring you immense joy. He is alive. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are alive. Your son, Jesus Christ, is alive. He definitely died. The tomb was definitely filled with a body. And then you definitely walked out of it, Jesus. You are alive right now. You are present with us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us right now as we're about to take communion, that you would plan the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, that you are alive, Jesus. You would, Holy Spirit, plan that deeper into our hearts than it ever has been. Help us to consider it more deeply than we ever have. Help us to understand it in deeper ways than we ever have. And Father, may the, may the repetition of the fact that you are alive in our minds, in our hearts, may, we, may that be the cause of our joy and the cause of so much gratitude from us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.